They say that if somebody has a Bible that is falling apart, they are not. Um, the problem is today is that people have electronic Bibles and you can't wear them out. So I'd like to admonish you, though. You can have your electronic Bibles. Get a paper Bible. And use a paper Bible because you can see where it gets worn. And take notes in it. And uh, I've worn out many Bibles. And uh, I admonish you to use a paper Bible also. So it's a great to bring a paper Bible to church along with your electronic Bibles. I know people have set up all their stuff there. That's good. That's fine. And, but we want to learn the Word, and we want to see where it is. And I think it's electronic version. You just only have a small little screen. You can't see the whole thing. And uh, so on a paper Bible, you could uh, see everything. And, and you take, almost take a photograph in your mind on where it's at. And uh, so that's, that's important. I want to, even though we live in this electronic age, I want to admonish you, don't give up the paper Bible. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for the, the music that we can sing and lift up our voices to you. Because, Lord, you are great. You're awesome. And, Lord, uh, you have done great and mighty things for all of us as a group and even individually, Lord. And we want to praise you for it. We want that praise to be part of our everyday life. So, Lord, don't let anybody rob it from us. Don't let us give it away. But, Lord, always let us be in the state of, of in being in awe of you and in awe of your goodness and your greatness and your great plan that you planned from the beginning of the creation of this earth that goes into eternity. And you tell us the whole thing. And we can know it. We can know your mind and your will in, on this matter. And so, Lord, help us to think upon that and meditate upon it. And as we do, Lord, lift us out of our despicable states that we find ourselves and help us to rise above it as our minds is stayed upon you during the week. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I have been preaching on the doctrines of grace. And this one that I'm on right now is called Particular Redemption or unconditional, excuse me, uh, particular uh, redemption or limited atonement. And of course, these uh, five points of which I am on the third one, the first being total depravity or radical corruption, the second one, unconditional election, of course, unconditional election, and then of course, limited atonement, which I'm calling particular redemption, which others have in history past, and or definite redemption. Right? Others have called it that. Uh, so there's different names for it, all mean the same thing. And so these doctrines definitely are major. Uh, they are the gospel uh, in their details. They do affect how we view God, how we view the Christian life, how we view everything, how we handle our Bibles. And so they are important for us to know and to think about and to be uh, engaging in on a regular basis. It's nice to know that someone is actually thinking through these truths because they are that important. The common view of this one that I'm looking at, limited atonement or a particular redemption, the common view is that Jesus died for everyone in some way. Limited atonement does not mean that Christ's death was, of course, uh, limited in any kind of value. It was very valuable. 
the gospel is to be offered, we know, to all men. And it is often said that the atonement is or was uh, sufficient for all and efficient only for those who believe it or only for the elect. Um, many Reformed theologians, as I mentioned already last week, say that one of the most important questions that we could ask on this particular truth is, what was the original purpose or intent of Christ's death? What was he doing up there on the cross? Who was he dying for up on the cross? And to what extent was that death? That's important, and Scripture does answer that question. So to answer that question, there are two major answers. The first one was he died was for this reason, to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing, which secured the salvation of no one. Arminians say that the atonement was not designed by God to purchase a specific people, for himself, but to make salvation possible. That's the word. That's the, the catch word there. That is the operative word. Possible for any person who will of his own or her own free will repent and believe. All right, I do not hold to that position. I hold to this next position, which I believe is biblical. Uh, and it's this, that Christ died and his intention for his death was to ensure the salvation of his people which was definite in design and accomplishment. This doctrine states, according to J.R. Packard, which is a reliable Reformed theologian, uh, that he said that the death of Christ actually puts away the sins of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through re regeneration and kept in faith for glory. So from this definiteness and effectiveness follows the limitlessness of this particular doctrine, that Christ did not die in this efficacious sense for everyone, for we know not all are saved. All right, so the issue in limited atonement, that is the, the atonement was limited in its design that is, that the original design of the atonement was to provide a definite atonement for the elect for their sins, and of course would be then covered and washed away so that God's children could um, be right with him and dwell with him forever. So, just to bring you up to speed and a quick review from last time, so far that I covered that from this up to this particular point, certain questions and the first question was uh concerning uh for what reason did christ die and of course the atonement of christ is effective in that it is it justifies a person before god it it was designed to redeem and cleanse of sin it was designed to propitiate the father that means to turn away his wrath from the sinner and then to raise that person to new life. Now, all these mean uh, is that his death had a purpose, which was intended for some and not for others. His death had an effect 
an effective intent that was limited to certain persons. A second thing that I said was that the purpose of, of the death of Christ was to redeem a certain people and not others. So, again, the question is, for whom did Christ die? Well, Christ gave his life in particular for certain people. Now, look at the John chapter 6 passage again. Uh, in verse number 37, where it says this, in verse 37, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now again, in that passage and in, uh, is a sequence, and the sequence is, is simply this, that all that the Father gives are drawn, right? So the gift of the elect to the Son, all that are drawn come to Christ. All who come receives, and whoever comes, the Lord will in no wise cast out. And then all who are drawn are raised up to eternal life. So there's the whole plan of God in salvation. Now this, of course, is not because you and I or anyone else are inherently desirable. We are not. We are ungodly. We are unholy. We are rejectors of God. Right? It is because you and I are a gift from the Father to the Son. It is the perfect gratitude and the love that we sung about this morning of the Son towards the Father that opens the arms of the Son to embrace the gift. And the gift are God's children. The gift are those who receive Christ. The gift are ultimately those who read their Bibles, the elect. So see then that all that he has given me, Jesus says, tells us that none of these will be lost. No one could be lost. And so in, again in the Gospel of John, Jesus intercedes for certain people and not for the world. Who does he intercede for? He intercedes for those whom the Father has given me. All right, so the purpose, those whom God purposed to redeem include all who believe that Christ's saving work is commonly spoken of in terms of all and world, uh, every nation, not all individuals, every class of people, uh, of course, not all individuals. Again, so these verses that use the all and world and every are really verses that are there for scriptural emphasis and that and really the point in scripture is the reason for the general use of the terms of all whole world every all is because there was a false notion uh, that salvation was for the Jews alone so the world all men all nations every creature are used to correct a mistaken notion that salvation was for the Jews alone. So Christ 
died for the Jews and the Gentiles without distinction, but they are not intended to, in, uh, to indicate that Christ died for all men without exception. See, he did not die for the purpose of saving every and each lost sinner. That's the, the bottom line of this doctrine. And so when we get to passages of scriptures, like I mentioned already in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, remember, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, have everlasting life, does have a context. And it does have a, a person he's talking to, and that person was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, remember, had in his mind that there was going to be a Messiah, he was going to come, and that he was just for the Jews. It never dawned on the Jewish mind that the Messiah would pay for the sins of Romans and Greeks and Samaritans. See, these, in the mind of the Jewish mind, were defiled people that needed to be thrown out of the presence of God and destroyed. It was inconceivable for the Jew that a Gentile can be saved, forgiven of sins and be made right with God. See, it was inconceivable in their mind. So, see, then the world... In Scripture, all, every, does not mean every single person, all right? And there's many Scriptures that indicate that he will justify the many, uh, like in Isaiah. He, he himself bore the sins of many. And then in, in Matthew, uh, to give his life a ransom for many. And then in John chapter 10 and verse number 11, it says, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then if you just turn again to John chapter 10 and verse 24, you will see there to 26, the Jews, it says in verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in the Father's name, these testify of me. And verse 26 is a very key verse here. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So the sheep here are those to whom he gives eternal life. They are those for whom he lays down his life. They are not all because he tells those who are rejecting him that they are not his sheep. So the whole language used here implies that the salvation of the sheep alone is the object for which he laid down his life. That's very particular. That's very uh, limited. Um, and that's why it's called that, because it's saying here that Jesus did not lay down his life for the wolves and the goats, just for the sheep. So then Jesus was dying on the cross. He was submitting himself and paying the price for their sins for a particular, specific people. All those the Father had given to him was on his heart when he was dying. Okay, now that is the doctrine laid out. That's some review there from last time. But remember, any time a major doctrine is put out there, and it becomes something that the church uh, uh, really stands upon, there is going to be 
alternate interpretations. There's going to be attacks against that doctrine. There are going to, they're going to take scripture and going to say, what about this scripture? What about that scripture? What about that scripture? Well, this morning, I want to go back. I already looked at two of them. I'm going to go back and look at the other four of the passages that are used to refute, tried, actually to try to refute, limited atonement. All right, so they will say, what about the passages that suggest that Christ died for all people? All right, so already I've covered John 3.16 from last time, but we already saw in that passage of Scripture that all, uh, that of course it teaches is that all who do come, believe in him, will not perish, and then of course will have everlasting life. This text itself does not say anything uh, about who will believe or who can believe. That was not the point of the passage. Right? The second passage that I covered last time is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. You don't need to turn there. I'll just remind you of what we said there. For, and I'll read it to you. It says, for it is, uh, it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And I said t- several things about this, that there were about four interpretations for this passage. The one I landed on was this, that God is the Savior of all men in one sense, and especially of those who believe in another sense. So that, that's the interpretation that I believe fits the context because God is a savior of men in, in that of common grace. Because the word savior does, means different things in different places in the Bible. It means that God rescues someone from their enemies or that God provided a physical healing which rescued them from death or that God saved in the sense of he provided food so people wouldn't die of hunger or God saves in the sense of, of course, uh, every day giving someone breath to live their life so they, they wouldn't die. So in other words, the word Savior could, does mean in a common grace way that God preserves, he delivers, he supplies the needs of all who live in the world in a very general way, and he does that. For God allows the rain to fall on the just as, as well as the unjust. Matthew tells us that, right? So he extends grace to them saving them from destruction every day of their lives. So God is also gracious in allowing many to hear the proclamation of the gospel. All these mercies are referred to as common grace. God sustains the life of his sworn enemies, often for many decades in Scripture. All right? But there is, in a special way, a special grace that is given to his children. And of course, remember, the most important aspect of salvation is that we would be saved from the wrath of God. That's the most important thing. So the bottom line interpretation that I gave last week in this passage, 1 Timothy 4.10, teaches that we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior, the preserver, the sustainer, the deliverer of all people, showing mercy to all, each and every day, they live, especially to those who believe, who receive the full salvation from his wrath and are given everlasting life. See, that's, they're a special group. They're especially blessed by God as 
one being his Savior. All right, so that's where we ended last time. Now, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to the next passage, which I'll spend some time on this morning, and that is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. There are actually four other passages. I don't know how far I'm going to get this morning. I'll just cut it off where I think it's a good place to cut it off and pick it up again next week. All right, but 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 9, I'll wait till you get there because I want you to see this passage with your own eyes. And then, I'll, of course, I want to examine the context of this passage of Scripture that is important to interpret it. All right, we can never remember, forget the context around any single passage of Scripture. We can take a, a, a Scripture and make it sound good and, sound, and even twist it to what we think it means, and it may not mean that at all once you get done with the context. And I believe this is one of those passages. All right, so let's look at it. I want to read the single passage first and then look at what's all around it and in it. It says in 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing in the New American Standard, some translations say not willing, all right, that any perish, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The English Standard Version says, reach repentance. Now, of course, the question would be, does this passage mean that God longs for every person to be saved? Therefore, Jesus died for everyone. At least his or her salvation is a possibility. Or is the interpretation every person within a particular category of humanity? All right, so when considering 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, two terms must be examined to be able to grasp on what this is referring to. And the first term, and if you notice, it says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing, all right, or not willing. So the term willing, I'm going to consider the term willing first. Uh, according to Reformed theologian Lorraine Bettner, actually that's a man, not a woman, uh, he had to live all his life being called Lorraine, but I think that in England that was a common thing. Uh, nonetheless, the word will is used in really different senses in Scripture. It sometimes is used in the sense of decree or purpose. Uh, in other words, theologians will say that God has a decretive will, and that means that all is subject to a fixed foreordination. The, the, re, the view of a decretive will uh, sovereignly states that God foreordains all that happens in the sphere of all the material events may be regarded as necessary uh, in that realm. And that is to say they are brought about by the actions of necessary causes. In short, God brings about all that he purposes or wills to do. Nothing hinders God from what he 
purposes or decrees to do. Nothing could stop God from doing what he wills to do, in other words. And of course, that's used in many places in Scripture. Now, if that is the meaning applied to this passage, then we would have to interpret it like this, uh, that the atonement would lead to universalism, that everyone would be saved. And we, and we say, okay, that doesn't apply here. Uh, so we have to say that doesn't, is not what is being taking place here. A second way of looking at the will of God is his preceptive will. And that is to say or, uh, that God sovereignly gives us, in other words, commands. Um, but commands are contingent upon the freedom of man. That is, we can disobey God's commands. Uh, the perceptive will can be broken uh, by man and can be clearly disregarded by man. Um, this is a possibility but again, a little awkward, according to R.C. Sproul, he said that if you were to interpret this in that way, uh, it would mean when applied to the atonement that all are not allowed to perish. And he says that's not really the intention of the thrust of the passage. Sometimes, though, will is used in the sense of desire and wish. That's why in one translation you have that God is not willing that any should perish. And in another one you say you have, like in the numeric standard, God is not wishing. So you see, there was a problem in, in the translator's mind on what word to actually use. Well, I, I, I believe that that's how it is used here. Uh, sometimes it, it, it's used for God's desire, God's wish, um, not necessarily his decretive will. In other words, God's will of disposition. Uh, what pleases God? God does not delight, it says in the Old Testament, in the death of the wicked. But the, the wicked still die. But it doesn't mean he delights in it. If this meaning is applied to the atonement, it would mean that God does not have the disposition that any should perish. For instance, a righteous judge does not will or desire that anyone should be hanged or sentenced to prison. Yet, he wills or pronounces sentence that the guilty person shall be punished. Why? Because he's a righteous judge. But it doesn't mean that he wishes that to happen. So, that becomes an important word, landing on uh, God's will of disposition. That's where it's heading. A second word in our passage is the word any. He's not wishing that any to perish. Now, any, remember, does not mean already all. Arminians insist that 2 Peter 3.9, that the words any and all refer to all mankind without exception. I already talked about that see any we have to ask the question when we look at a passage of scripture like that any what all right any from which group any person people or particular class or category of people so see in second peter 3 9 we have to ask like who is the you patient towards you and who are the any and who are the all 
referring to in this passage of Scripture. And that, of course, becomes something that's important. Well, to, to get at that, let's go back a bit for a minute and take a look at the context and the recipients of the letter of First and Second Peter. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 of Second Peter, look at verse number 1 through 3. It says this, 2 Peter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And for these, in verse 4, he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. All right, so now in this passage of scripture, we see that 1st and 2nd Peter is, of course, talking about a particular group of people. All right, now, if you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll see in the introduction the same thing. And then he identifies the recipients of his letter. And he says in chapter 1, verse number 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithany. And then notice what it says who are chosen according to the knowledge, a foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be, be yours in the fullest measure. So, turn back to 2 Peter 3, 9. So in these two introductions, Peter is addressing a group of people. And that group of people, they are called the Beloved, they are called the called, and they are called the chosen. So that becomes a very important uh, point because he has an audience that he's speaking to. So 2 Peter 3.9 is going to be addressed to that audience. Now, but we, before we go that far, let's read the context. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, go up to verse 7, and then we'll read down to verse number 15. And here's the context, all right? But by the, this is verse 7 of 2 Peter 3. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And here's our passage. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be, 
destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him in peace and uh, spotless and blameless and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which some are things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. All right, so now... In that context, when we look at the whole passage and not just at the passage isolated from the rest of the context, we discover something. You know what we discover? This is what we discover. It is not primarily a salvation verse at all. It is a verse about the coming of Christ. It is a second coming passage. Now, look at with me at verse number nine again, and it says this. Here's looking at the details. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. That's singular. Not promises, but promise. All right? As some count slowness. Now you have to say this. What promise? Well, the promise of his coming. If you look up to chapter three in verse number four, it says this. Where is the promise of his coming? These are the scoffers who are asking where. It's always been the same. Right? So it's singular. And it says in verse number four, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, the reference is Christ's second coming when he will come for judgment and the wicked will perish in the lake of fire. So then look again at verse number 10 through 12. It says, but the day of the Lord will come. And then at the end of verse number 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And then, of course, looking in verse 12 for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. So this verse is definitely talking about the coming of Christ. But in this verse, it refers to a limited group. Again, verse number 9. It starts off by saying, the Lord is not slow about his promise, singular, the promise of his coming, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's the you? The you is the elect, 
that you are the beloved, that you are the children of God. So he is not wishing, he is not willing for any of the elect to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, so that means that God is patient toward you, the elect, and that means not many of whom had not yet come to repentance, just as now God is patient with those who have not yet come to believe in him. He's holding off his coming. He's holding off his judgment so people, his elect, would come to Christ, so his sheep would come to Christ. So then God is not wishing that any of us to perish, and so that is why God is delaying these things so that all of us come to repentance and salvation and receive the benefits of salvation. Now that makes sense for this reason. If that's the case, that is the case in Scripture, that all will come to Christ. He will lose no one. Everyone who, has a, who is a gift by the Father to the Son will come to Christ. There was no one who will be left out. There will, no, there will be no one who will be overlooked at all whatsoever. So see, in the context of Scripture... We can't just isolate that passage. In other words, God is not wishing that any of his elect will perish. The passage may be read as follows. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you, his elect, to perish, but all his elect would come to repentance. So that's the... That's the interpretation of the passage. So actually, this is a passage that bolsters limited atonement. It is not a passage to use against the truth to say that that's not what it says. So it's very important that we grasp that. And so, uh, because these are going to be the passages that are going to be thrown at you when they ask you, uh, do you believe in the doctrines of grace? Yes. Do you consider yourself a Calvinist? I guess I do, right? Well, what about this passage, all right? What about John 3.16? What about the Timothy passage? All right, what about those passages, right? Now, here's another passage, a third one, and we'll, we'll look at, actually, it's a fourth one, all right? And it's second, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, and then in verse, uh, verse 6. 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Here's another passage that will come about, of course, because of the use of the language here in the passage. But again, remember, can't isolate the passage. It says this, in verse number 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, if you notice in verse 7, there's a problem. And here's the problem in verse number 7. Paul is defending something that people were accusing him of being a liar. 
All right, so the rest of the passages on top of that are going to support him solving the problem. Now, remember, all does not mean all people without exception, but all people without distinction. That means that Jews and Gentiles, bond and free, men and women, rich and poor, will come to Christ from different nations. Now, historically, the Jews had been the exclusive recipients of God's grace. I've already mentioned that. Well, Paul's dealing with that here again. The salvation of the Gentiles was a mystery that, was not, that really was not known in other ages. When I was preaching through Ephesians, that was one of the things that Paul brought up. That, listen, the gospel is going to the Gentiles also. They're included in God's sheepfold. I have one a flock of sheep, but I also have another flock. I have the flock of Jews, and I have a flock of all the other nations too. That's what he was meaning in that passage in John. All right, so see, so rigid was the Phariseistic exclusivism that the Gentiles were called unclean, common sinners, and they were even at times called dogs. And dogs were, is about the most despicable animal that you could have uh, associated with the dude. They were dirty. They were scavengers. Uh, they did not, they don't treat their animals then. They didn't treat them then like we treat them now. Where they have animal hospitals and animal gymnasiums. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. I was driving down a street in, in uh, Van Nuys, California saying, animal health clinic. Come exercise your animal. You know, I mean, inside this beautiful building, I'm sure there are many animals in there, but I don't really think in terms of that. We have Molly at home, and she's our little Bijan, but I told her the only thing keeping her alive is Proverbs, because Proverbs tells us to be kind to your animals. I remind her of that often. And, uh, but nonetheless, getting away from what I'm saying here is that... Um, the Jews looked at Gentiles as really the, most, the lowest people on the earth. That there's no way that God could ever save these people. That they are, their lifestyles, their idolatry, uh, everything, even though they weren't looking at themselves. Of course, that, the Lord brings that up too. But in Acts, uh, this is what it says in Acts 11. You don't have to turn there. In Acts 11... When uh, it says this, now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, right, those who were circumcised took him aside and took issue with him, it says in Scripture. Why did they take, take issue with Peter? Because he went into the house of the Gentiles. He defiled himself. He was unclean. And so they took issue with him, saying to him, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize what you've done? But then later on in that same chapter in Acts, when Peter explained what had happened and how the, how the power of the Holy Spirit came and people heard the preaching of the gospel and they repented and believed, and then the Spirit of 
God came upon them. This is what he says in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. So, with all that said, the thrust of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 4, is that Paul is defending his ministry to the Gentiles, saying here that the ransom of Christ is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. So if we take that passage and just isolate it without the context again, we are all we're gonna we are gonna misinterpret it and we can say, look, look, God is, desires not you know, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. All right, what he is saying again is that God desires men and women and people from the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what the all means. All right, not every single individual. All right, so that's what that means. And, and so we go on to the next one. Here's the fifth one. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1. I think this is the passage that I'm looking at for. Second Peter 2, 1. If not, I'll go on. That's not the one I'm looking at. Let's see. All right. What passage is this? Um, here's the passage. I, I, uh, I think it's, uh, it could be a First Timothy or Second Timothy, but it's, it's, but it says, but, but false. Maybe you can find it for me. Right, but false prophets. This is where electronic stuff comes in. Good, we could do. Is it Second Peter two one? That's what I have. Why didn't I see it? All right, that's it. See that? Well, thank you for that. All right, Second Peter two one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, and here it is, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. All right, now, Arminians say, or the other side would say, that Jesus purchased salvation for everyone, even those who would end up in hell. Denying the master who bought them. Now, there nothing... Just let me just give you some observation. Nothing here about the blood of Christ or the purchase of redemption. In fact, the Greek word used here is not the regular word for, for Lord, which would be kurios. It is, it, it is actually the word despot, despotes or despot, which we would get uh, mean master, creator, or even the idea of owner. So, see, coupled with another word in this passage, the word purchase, right? Denying, denying the matter that bought them. And, of course, purchase would mean a despot would, who buys something owns it. In other words, this passage is not teaching about the atonement of Christ at all but that the false teachers are denying the Lord their creator who made them and as creator owns them. That's the passage. That's the sense of the passage. All right, so again, looking at the scripture, we see that this passage is not a support 
uh, or a refute of limited atonement at all. It is actually not teaching about the atonement of Christ. It's teaching about God being creator, and as a creator, he owns all people. Does he not? Isn't everyone responsible to the God who created the heaven and the earth, right? Aren't we responsible to, aren't we create creatures who are created in the image of God responsible to the creator? Whether someone comes to Christ or not, you're still responsible. That's why there's a righteous judgment of God. You're responsible for every word, every thought, every deed you've done. Whether you're a believer or not, you're responsible to the creator. And someday, God will righteously judge based on your life, all right, and the life of everyone. Of course, remember uh, that common grace goes out to everybody, but the special thing that we have as believers is that we've come to believe, we've heard the gospel, and we're saved, and that's the, the great common grace of God. But so in this passage, Scripture is not talking about the atonement at all. All right, a sixth passage and probably one that you, don't, you may not find, but I found in theological writing that this one comes up all the time. And it's this, 1 Corinthians 15, all right, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Now, immediately when I say 1 Corinthians, what do you think of? Resurrection passage, right? As soon as I talk about 1 Corinthians, I'm talking about resurrection. So that this passage is going to have something to do with the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now actually, this is a very good passage of Scripture uh, that they could use, and uh, so one we have to look at. Now, again, according to uh, theologian Lorraine Bettner, who has done a great uh, study upon these particular truths, says that this verse is often quoted by Arminians to prove unlimited or universal atonement. That this verse is from Paul's, of course, famous resurrection chapter. And the context makes it clear that he is not talking about life in this age, whether physical or spiritual, but he's talking about resurrection life. And not spiritual resurrection life, but physical resurrection life, where we're going to have new bodies. All right? And why could I say that? Well, look at verse 22. Again, it says, For all in Adam, uh, all as in Adam, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his, at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God uh, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. All right, so again, who's going to be the first fruit? Who has already been the first fruits of the resurrection? Christ, right? And Christ, because he was a man, died as a human being, a sinless human being, right? But he died as a man, and so he had to be resurrected physically. Someday, because he's the first fruits, the rest of the crop is going to come. Who's the rest of the crop? Us, all those who believe, all his elect, all his children, all his sheep are promised that they would be resurrected. In other words... 
Christ is the first to enter the resurrection life. And then when he comes, his people also enter into their resurrection life. And what Paul says is that at that time, a glorious resurrection life will become a reality, not for all mankind, but for all those who are in Christ. Now, we do know from Scripture that there will be a resurrection of life, which he's talking about here, and a resurrection of what? Damnation. Everyone's going to be resurrected. Everyone is going to have a body that will never be able to die again. Everyone. But there is a resurrection unto life. And the resurrection unto life are given to those who are God's sheep, who believe the gospel, who have been elect before the foundation of the world, and they are the ones who are promised that they will have a new resurrected body and because they are in Christ. So, so those are the six problem passages that usually come about when we are dealing with this particular doctrine. Now, I'm going to end right there this morning, but I have to pick it up because I'm not done. Because there's something else that there, there's a problem. And I'm going I'm to end with this. I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm going to just uh, have a word of prayer. Okay, which, is the fo- which of the following is, is, is correct? Let me state this first. The Father imposed his wrath due upon sinners. The Son underwent punishment for which of the following? All the sins of all men. Secondly, all the sins of some men. Thirdly, some of the sins of all men. Which one is correct? That's what I'm going to leave you with for this week. And that's where I'll pick it up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your graciousness to us. Lord, I realize that as we are looking at these passages, more in a study sense today, Lord, but equipped us to be able to answer the people who would object. Convince us also, Lord, that these, this is what the scriptures say so we can be convinced ourselves. And Lord, to know that this is the way you've done it. And Lord, because you've done it this way, it does affect our life. Help us to understand these things, think about these things, meditate upon them. And I pray, Lord, as we come to the end of them, we would learn just to rejoice, thanking you, Lord, that you brought the grace of God to us, that you brought the gospel to us. We didn't deserve it. We could have never done anything to have deserved it, but you brought it to us. And, Lord, that humbles us. And that makes you great. That makes salvation yours, not ours. We could have done nothing for it. We could have added nothing to it. You've done it all. And so this morning we have to lift up your name and give you glory. Bless us this week as we think about these things. And I pray, Lord, that we become more confident and convinced of them. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.